How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to The Last Word on Spurs. We hope you're keeping safe. We hope you're keeping well. And hopefully we're going to give you another hour of escapism, an hour of light relief as we roll back the times as we bring another former Spurs player onto this show. But before we unveil who we've got for you this week, I'm delighted to have back alongside me, John from the Lee White Rose. John, how are you? Hey, Ricky. Yeah, I'm doing uh, relatively well, just sort of uh, taking each day as they come at the moment, enjoying spending time with my family and uh, looking forward to doing these weekly shows with you. We've got another excellent ex-Spurs player tonight. Uh, he's got a host of stories to tell us all. I'm sure our viewers and, and listeners will really enjoy this show. We've been quite lucky that in this period, with this last kind of couple of months, we've been lucky enough to interview some really, really fascinating experts players. And we've got yet another one to bring you. He made over 85 appearances for Tottenham between the 2001 to 2005 period. Between the sticks, we're delighted to welcome to the last word on Spurs, Casey Keller joins us. Casey, how are you? Hey, Ricky. Hey, John. Good. Just uh, like you all, just kind of dealing with this interesting situation that we're all in and making the most of it. And the States, Casey, I mean, what's it like over there? How, how are you adjusting to life out there at the moment? Well, I think it all depends on where you are regionally. And I'm sure that's the same in England is where certain spots hit harder than others. And But we're all kind of stuck under the same boat that, that professional sports is shut down across the world. And you know, I myself, who after after retiring, moved into broadcasting. So, you know, I've been put on, you know, full hiatus like everyone else and um, just waiting for things to open back up in a, in a safe, responsible manner. Like John said, a fascinating career and one that we're going to look to delve into. So let's go back to the very, very start. You was born in Olympia, Washington and played college football at the University of Portland, earning inclusion into the Adidas Goalkeeper of the Year in 1991. Now, during the college off-season, you were playing for the Portland Timbers and also the US Under-20 national team that finished fourth at the FIFA Under-20 World Cup. At what age, Casey, would you say that you got into football and soccer? And what made you close to or for you to choose to pursue this over more popular US sports, the likes of baseball, American football, basketball, where you must have been quite the pioneer? Throughout the United States, there was areas where every American was playing 
soccer, more or less. And, and, and in the Northwest where I grew up, uh, at six, seven years old, it would be, I think, less kids not playing soccer than more kids that were playing soccer. And I, and I, you know, I grew up in a, in a sports family. My dad was a baseball player. He, he played at university, uh, Washington state university was drafted in the late, late rounds by the Yankees. Never, never pursued that. Never thought that he would, that, that he really was going to make it as a professional baseball player. So chose to kind of go back and focus on the family farm. But sports was always a big part of my life growing up. And I just saw it playing the game, thought it looked great and asked my mom to find me a team uh, to, to play on. And, you know, really loved playing soccer as a kid and also played all the other American sports, uh, baseball, basketball, American football, it, it enjoyed them immensely. It wasn't really probably until about 14, 15 when you know, I started getting noticed by youth national teams and that I kind of had to start making some decisions on letting the other sports go. Baseball was the first sport to go. Uh, American football was the next and then basketball was the next. And, and then when I solely focused on, on, on you know, a career as a footballer, I uh, was interesting because I remember having a conversation with my father and, and kind of saying, you know, why are you giving up these other sports? There's no professional league in you know, in our country. And, and this was that kind of cocky arrogance that you have to kind of have. And as a 16 year old, I remember telling my dad, oh, it's okay, dad, you know, uh, the goal is to you know, play professionally in Europe and, and, and hopefully in England. And what I didn't realize is that 16 year old kid that no American had actually done that at that point. But I guess you have to have that confidence, that borderline arrogance, if you're if you're going to make it. And you know, I was uh, you know the first American to play in England on a on an American passport. A couple others had come before me. John Harkes, in particular, uh, Jurgen Sommer was on contract at Luton before uh, he hadn't quite made made it into the first team yet. But both of uh, John was playing on a British passport, Jurgen playing on a German passport. So I was the first that kind of had to go through that work permit process. 1990, you received a call up to be part of the US men's senior football team for the World Cup in Italy. First appearance at a World Cup since 1950, so no pressure. You finished <laughs> on the bench for the group games against Italy. After losing the three games, the US did not advance in the tournament. But what are your memories of the tournament overall and, and just what an experience that must have been for you at such a young age to be part of your first senior men's World Cup? Well, it, it kind of started a little bit earlier, and as, as the aforementioned 89 Youth World Cup in Saudi Arabia, um, we had, you know, we had advanced, we, we, we took fourth place, uh, lost in the semifinals in extra time to Nigeria, uh, um, and then, you know, lost in the, in the third, fourth place game to Brazil. Uh, I was awarded the silver ball for the second most valuable player of the tournament. And, and I kind of, through that success that our team had, the under 20 manager as qualification had a little bit of a sputter. The U.S. Soccer Federation then put the under 20 coach, Bob Gansler, in charge of the full national team. He then brought me in to compete with Tony Miola as the, as the starter for the for the for the World Cup team, uh, and at you know 20 years old, it was an honor. But also, you know, 
in all honesty, way above my head. Uh, not having played a professional game, to be in you know that environment. Yes, it was it was a great learning curve and something that I that I take uh, that I definitely took forward uh, throughout my career as as kind of a help. But but I think probably the most beneficial thing for myself was probably not playing in that World Cup, was being able to see the difficulties, understanding that, you know, uh, sometimes you have to learn how to run, uh, learn how to walk before you can run. And we were maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves, but there always has to be a starting point at some stage. And, and that 90 team did a great job of qualifying and getting the ball rolling for what is, you know, what became you know, a successful spell in really pushing, you know, the United States. You know, of course, we have a long ways to go to being a full, you know, footballing nation. And, and who knows with all the competition that we have, if we'll ever become, you know, uh, completely competitive to challenge for World Cup titles. But we definitely put ourselves on the map and and, and hopefully the national team will rebound. But, but that 90 team, it was great being a part of. It was great kind of sometimes it's great learning how to lose before you can be successful. And, and, uh, I took a lot out of understanding really where we were in the, in the world pecking order. You mentioned there, Casey, about playing for your country. You went on to represent the U S at the 1998, 2002 and 2006 world cups, respectively, often battling against Brad Friedel for that number one Jersey. How was your relationship with Brad and not many players can say they were part of four separate World Cup squads where you received 102 caps for the US. What were the highlights of playing for your nation? And as I mentioned, battling with Brad for that number one spot. I think any time you look at, at, at success and, and depend, talk about whatever sport across, across the world, I think if you have somebody that you're competing against it always pushes you to be better and and there's no question that that brad and i had that that competition and and yeah it was difficult because i think in a in a, when you when you look at goalkeeping at any club you know any national team if if you have a couple midfielders that are kind of in the same position you can adapt your team to play both of them. You obviously can't do that in goal. And so, yeah, there was times, obviously, Brad was disappointed when, when I was the number one and disappointed. I was obviously disappointed when, when Brad got the nod. So, but I think it, we both handled it. I think professionally, we still, you know, on occasion run into each other doing different things and it's, it's obviously very cordial and, 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 but it's, uh, but that competition was, was I think key to both of us succeed, uh, succeeding uh, and having the successes that we both had. Following a famous 1-0 win over Brazil in 1998, in which you actually made 10 saves, many of them from complete point-blank range, received praise of the highest order from Brazilian legend Romario, saying it was the best goalkeeping performance he had ever seen. What's your memories of that game and, and that praise? I mean, that's just incredible. The crazy part about it was, is, is CONCACAF used to play these tournaments not on FIFA dates. So it was always a fight to leave, you know, your clubs missing the odd, the odd match. And, and so I had, I think Brad had played the earlier rounds and then I had come over to play the later rounds. And, and we, we had this matchup against Brazil and I remember being a bit jet lagged and the, the weather was really bad in LA and, 
and there was a, a, a chance that the game was going to be called because maybe the conditions weren't what they wanted them to be. I was kind of almost thinking in the back of my mind, I was kind of hoping that it got delayed to give myself a little more time to, to be ready uh, physically and mentally. And I'm obviously, I'm so happy that it didn't. But um, I think any time you can put together a performance for your national team in a FIFA-sponsored event, not a friendly, not just a, you know, a game that the that that two teams are playing, but in a, but in an event, Concacaf Gold Cup against the likes of Romario Babeto, uh, Giovanni Elber, who was a former you know European Golden Boot winner with Bayern Munich, uh, you know, came on as a sub to try to get that goal later in the in the match and. Subsequently, I played with him at Gladbach, and I would every once in a while I would just uh, remind him, did you come on at the end of that game to score a goal? You know, and, and so it is, it was one of those things. And then after the game, you know, the, the realization that we had beaten Brazil, you know, with the quality of the squad that they had in a FIFA event, uh, there was actually one stage where I made a, a couple of saves against Romario. He's standing over me in the match. I have the ball in my arms, and, and he just kind of shook his head. He didn't know what to do. He just put his hand down and shook my hand in the middle of the game for making a couple of the saves. So, you know, there were some real cool moments from that match. And, 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 uh, and then it isn't until later that you kind of put it into perspective that uh, the U.S. hasn't beaten Brazil since uh, and, and, and have had a, some decent opportunities to do so. And so... Uh, and then, and then I think the other thing that puts it into perspective is so often as a goalkeeper, you know, you have a great game, you're flying around, you're making a bunch of saves, you lose two nil where to then, you know, to have, you know, the former Everton Portsmouth player, Preggie score, you know, the goal from distance that he did for us to be able to hold off and, and, and to get the win makes all the difference. A move to England followed your appearance at that World Cup. Joining Millwall, where you became a firm fan's favourite over a four-year stint, with the Lions winning the Player of the Year for the 92-93 season. Um, tell us how that move to Millwall came about, and what were your thoughts on England in general, and also Millwall, because I'm not sure if you were aware at the time of Millwall, that kind of um, prehistoric hooliganism that existed around that club. Tell us your thoughts about that period. Well, kind of how it happened was I was finishing up my eligibility at University of Portland. And I think when you, when you look at kind of the ages of players, uh, I think it's, it's, it's it, the university system in America is difficult for more field players than goalkeepers because that 18 to 21, 22 is such a crucial period for players to, you know, make their move from YTS, get kind of into the you know, into the reserves, training with the first team and, and, and really seeing if they're going to make it as a, as a pro. I think as a goalkeeper, obviously that career gets expanded a little bit and, and you need a little bit more experience before you kind of break in. So for the, I had some opportunities, you know, after the Youth World Cup, kind of after, you know, the kind of the World Cup cycle to maybe go to some different places but I just felt it was important for me just to get more games, get more experience, be a little bit older. And, and where I was really lucky kind of in that timing was, you know, the NASL had folded a few years earlier. We had a lot of 
English pros that had played in the NSL that maybe had married American or at least had built a really good life for themselves in America. They started coaching. They started being a part of kind of the youth infrastructure, uh, particularly in the Northwest. And a couple key uh, individuals, you know, one being Clive Charles, former West Ham Cardiff player, uh, finished his career with the Portland Timbers, ended up being in, you know, one of those people coaching University of Portland. You know, another person was, was Bruce Rioch, finished his career with the Seattle Sounders, stayed in the Northwest for a little while, was coaching uh, kind of what you would call in England, kind of non-league. There was no real professional situation, but it was the highest level that was available at the time. And as I was finishing up at University of Portland, Bruce had come back to the UK, was, was actually was the coach at Millwall at the time. As it looked like I was you know, wanting to go over, had the ability to go over, there was still this stigma on Americans. And what it took was it took someone like a Bruce Rioch to receive a phone call from someone like a Clive Charles. Bruce Rioch having coached and played with and, and, and then coaching American players knew that they were better than people were giving them credit for. Having the respect of someone like a Clive Charles to say, hey, look, Bruce, this is somebody that you really need to look at. And don't only take my word for it. Look, this is what he accomplished at the Youth World Cup. You know, he's part of the U.S. Uh, World Cup team at 20 years old. Um, and, and Bruce, knowing that what Clive was saying, you know, was was worth having a look at. So when uh, I lost my my last, I think, college match in the playoffs, something, you know, five days later, I was on a plane and I was uh, and I had agreed to go on a month's trial at Millwall. Now, as I was getting ready to leave university, I was having to have conversations with my professors because I was leaving before finals and I was needing to take some incompletes and, and, and sort some classes out before I left. And I had a Scottish philosophy professor. And so I was sitting down with him in his office and I was telling him that, look, you know, it looks like I'm going to go over to England and, and, and go on trial. And, you know, what do I need to do to, 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 to sort my situation out with your class? And, and we, we took care of that. And then he asked me, he said, uh, so where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm going on trial at Millwall. And there was this look on his face. And he said, you know, they kill people there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy, here we go. Um, so so I, I kind of, you know, obviously this is pre-internet. Pre, you know, you, you just don't have the access that you have now to, to go back and kind of look at some things. And obviously I had some conversations with Clive and, 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 and Bill Irwin, who was a you know, former... Uh, Northern Ireland International, and and uh, unfortunately, as we were talking previously, uh, he got stuck behind this uh, this goalkeeper that um, I had the privilege of being coached by on occasion, the great Pat Jennings. So he didn't quite have the career that he had uh, that he'd hoped to have. But again, he was you know, my goalkeeping coach at University of Portland after he finished his career with the Portland Timbers. And so, you know, talking to Clive and Bill and got a good understanding and uh, of kind of what I was getting myself in for. And I think what it really kind of came down to is, look, 
if you can win over the Millwall fans, you can win over anybody. So you get the, in there in the championship, give yourself an opportunity, and, and it'll be a great building block for your career going forward. Leaving Millwall to join Leicester City under Martin O'Neill at the time, and went on to make 124 appearances for the Foxes, winning the 1997 League Cup against Middlesbrough. What are your memories of that Cup final against Tottenham? And what did you think of Spurs going into the game? Did you think that Leicester, obviously they had some great finishes in the Premier League around that time and with a strong team, the likes of Emil Heskey and Muzzy Izzet, yourself, Matt Elliott. Did you feel like you would beat Tottenham going into that game? Well, I think after winning, after kind of the three years that I'd been at, at, at Leicester City where, you know, when I signed for Leicester, you know, the pundits is, had expected us to be relegated by Christmas. You know, not only did we win the cup, but we finished in eighth place in the Premier League. Uh, you know, the next year we again finished in the top half of the Premier League. Uh, that season we finished again in the top half of the Premier League, got ourselves into another cup final. But it wasn't like you were, you know, we were going into a cup final thinking that, oh, we're going to roll on Spurs. I mean, you think of the quality of the Spurs team or anything like that. We knew we were competitive. We knew that we had as, you know, that it was pretty much right there. Uh, as much as I'm sure the Spurs players thought that, oh, we're playing Leicester City. We have as much as chance as anybody. And, and I think it was a very competitive game. And, 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 and we both, there wasn't a ton of chances. I didn't make a bunch of saves. Um, you know, Ian Walker didn't make a bunch of saves. I think it was just, a, you know, a, a cross came in. I got a, a low cross. I got a touch on it. And it just happened to be in the right place in the right time for Alan Nielsen. And, and, and sometimes that happens. And, you know, that's uh, it's always a shame whenever you get to a cup final and, and it's, it's there for the taking and you're unable to take it. But, um, but uh, yeah, there were, there was no, you know, uh, idea of, 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 of overconfidence or underconfidence. I think we were just, we weren't playing, you know, Manchester United or Arsenal at that time. That was obviously so dominant and, but we also knew we weren't playing, you know, somebody that we felt that we could completely dominate. It was I thought it was a pretty evenly matched game, evenly matched teams. And and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately for the Leicester City player, fortunately for the for the Spurs player, it just happened to bounce the right way at the right time. We're still thankful for that bounce because it hasn't been many trophies since, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> you had then two seasons in La Liga with Rayo Vallecano. <laughs> In August 2001, you returned to England to join Spurs on a free transfer. Tell us, how did you discover Spurs' interest and how did the club approach you? And we understand that your agent at the time explained there was also strong interest from Pesiktas in Turkey well, yeah. as well during that period. Yeah, it was very interesting. It was, uh, you know, in the two years that I was in Spain, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, it was, it, it probably... It, the difficulties for myself was, is before I left England, I was on a permanent residency, but I didn't realize that I actually could have gotten my British passport and not had to deal with all these, you know, EEU reg regulations and, and all the different things. Uh, so, but in the two years that I was in Spain, the foreign player allotment dropped from five players to four players my first season, to fleet to three players my last season. And, and so it, it just became a situation where I had a bunch of offers from Spanish teams, including Rio, to stay on. And but 
everything had to be dependent on having a European passport because they just had a, an overglutton of foreign players because of those new regulations that came in from the Spanish FA. And because permanent residency can be suspended for two years, I was still eligible on, and I didn't have to go back into the work permit process. I still had my permanent residency to go back to play in England. So there was a couple English clubs, one in particular that was that, that it really looked like through May, June, July that I was going to sign with. In the end, it happens, you know, things fall, fall apart and it falls through. And I kind of got stuck kind of sitting there thinking, oh, wow, what's what's going to happen? And so and then, of course, like anything, you know, two things happen at once. And the interest from from Tottenham combined with the interest from Besiktas. So I'm at my house in Olympia. I fly back to Spain. I'm actually in negotiations with Besiktas. I'm at a match, Besiktas match, sitting in a box. And I get a phone call and I'm talking to Daniel Levy in the hallway of the Besiktas match while it's going on talking with Spurs. So I had crazy. You know, that is crazy. Yeah. So I had my Spanish kind of my Spanish lawyer that worked with my British agent and one was in the UK. We were in Besiktas and really had to make a difficult decision. And the decision basically came down to this was jump straight into the first team with Besiktas, you know, play every minute but really not sure if you were going to get paid or, you know, re return to the UK, you know, reestablish the permanent residency, understand that I was coming in as the number two, you know, behind Neil Sullivan and battle for that spot. In the end, I think it just came down to the security of my family. Uh, not, not like in a, like in a, you know, worried about, you know, health and safety, but it was more just kind of worried about, you know, the the security financially of being a professional footballer, losing that permanent residency. And then if I needed to go back to the UK, have to go back through all the rigmarole of the work permit process. And in the end, you know, it, well, in the end, I made a decision to go to Tottenham uh, and, and, and battle for that number one. Now, what that probably did was and I knew this going into it was going to put in jeopardy my number one position with the national team going into the 2002 World Cup if I didn't quickly establish myself as the number one at Tottenham and and subsequently it it took a while for me to break in I, I, I played over Christmas uh, Glenn took me took me back out and it wasn't until the end of the season that I was able to truly establish myself in that first year as the number one. And, and it really opened a window for Brad to, uh, to, to play in that 2002 world cup. But in the end, you know, the, the professional side, I think always has to circumvent the national team side. And if you're consistently playing for your club team, that's the number one priority. Then you have to, 
to uh, you know have the privilege of of playing for your national team and and yes the timing of it was was a shame and then obviously the success of the 2002 team um, was a shame but but take nothing away I I was uh, fully happy with the decision to go to Tottenham you know win the number one spot and then you know the next two years you know play every minute of every match. Uh, after I had established myself uh, as the number one. I see, when joining the club, Glenn is regarded in Tottenham folklore as a legend, as a player. What was it like working with him as a manager and, and working with him as a man? Well, there was definitely a, you know, I made sure that before, you know, I had made that final decision to go to Tottenham that I, that I wanted to talk to Glenn and understand just kind of what his mentality was. Because, and I kind of told him, I said, look, I'm not coming in as a number two. I'm coming in as a number one and a half. And I want to make sure that you are committed as a manager of playing the player that you feel is the best. And, and, I, and I understand that when someone has, is established that it's going to take time. And that sometimes if that goalkeeper plays extremely well, it's not going to matter. And I understood that. But I just wanted... To hear it from him to say that, look, if you prove yourself to be the best, then I'm committed to playing you. And, I, and, that's, and that's why I was extremely disappointed. And Glenn and I had a conversation, you know, after the Christmas period when I'd played three or four matches and, and played well. And, and then he took me back out and put Neil in uh, because to me, that was a contradiction to that conversation that we had, you know, before I signed. And, and in the end, I was... I, I, I had some patience uh, and and was able to then establish that by the end of the season, so it didn't particularly, you know, matter. But but yeah, Glenn, you know, I give him a ton of credit. He gave me an opportunity to come to the club. He gave me the opportunity to establish myself as the number one, and uh, and, and, and without that, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had the the success at Tottenham that I had. You kind of picked up on it there, Casey, kind of our next question we're going to ask you in terms of, you know, having to battle for that number one because with Neil, it was never going to be an easy, you know, foregone conclusion. So tell us what your relationship like was with Neil, what your impressions were of the Spurs Lodge in general when you arrived. Um, and also, you know, you said you played every minute during that 2002 to 2003 and 2003 to 2004 season. What was that like for you cementing yourself as the number one? Well, it was huge. And, and, and Neil was was a great guy or is a great guy. And I had no, there was no animosity at all between the two of us. Just, it was a very, you know, competitive environment and, and, and very professional. And, and then obviously like any situation, um, I want to play, he wants to play. And then after I had established myself, then obviously Neil then, you know, took it upon, went on to go, you know, play for other clubs and, and be very successful. So, you know, it was a very. I thought. I thought Hans Eggers did a great job as the goalkeeping coach and in keeping that environment the way it was. Um, personalities between the two of us were great. Like you said, and then and then that kind of just you know foreshadows. You know, as it moves forward, you know Daniel and the board make a decision that club is gonna gonna look more young and more British, and I was neither. And um, and they. They signed Paul Robinson. I just wish they had come to me uh, in that summer period and said, you know, this is what we're doing. Um, there really 
is it going to be any competition? Uh, Paul is going to go straight in as the number one, regardless of what you've done for us, and and allowed me to make a decision as a professional. Do I stay happy with you know maybe a number two role? Maybe if it doesn't work out with Paul, reestablishing myself as the number one, or just saying you know thank you and and if if there's opportunities for you to to move and and get regular first team football you know, we'll, uh, we won't stand in your way. In the end, you know, it happened the way it happened. I ended up being able to leave at the, uh, at the, um, at the winter transfer window and, and go to Mooch and Gladbach. And I think if things had just been done in a different matter, it would have been a lot easier, I think, for all parties. It, it wasn't, it was a little bit of a, of, of a difficult breakup, but uh, one that I've, fully gotten over played with the likes of teddy sheringham gus Puyat, les ferdinand darren anderton stefan Fruin, christian zigo and of course ledley king who were the real sort of standout players for you and also who were the characters in the dressing room that really got everyone together and made everyone pull their socks up well i think you missed a couple other players in robbie Keane and jermaine defoe and a few guys that kind of came in later that that kind of was that transition and i think yeah those first couple of years Sure, you know, Les Ferdinand was another player that I had a tremendous amount of respect for, you know, and Teddy and Les and Darren were, were kind of that, you know, old established, you know, obviously Teddy for different, you know, for the time before and then coming back from Man U and Darren being there for so long. And, you know, yeah, there was some, you know, I think the difference of what I really realized is you know, uh, establishing, my, establishing myself at a club the size of Millwall, going to Leicester, having the, you know, the success that we had, but then coming to the club the size of Spurs with the foregone, you know, names that you mentioned is, you know, it's a, it's a bigger fishbowl. It's a bigger fishbowl with, with bigger names and bigger stars and, and, and to establish yourself you know, kind of in that environment is, is again, another step forward. And I think like anything, you earn those players' respect with the performances that you put out. And, and I think I was able to, you know, make a save or two and, and keep us in some games and, 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 and do some things which, which really kind of helped me establish myself with those guys. It was truly fun playing with you know, obviously the likes of, of those players and some that, you know, I'm still in contact with, with, with a few of them. And so it, it's just, uh, it was, it was a great time to be a part of, of Tottenham, obviously, you know, in the last, you know, five, six years, it was also, you know, tremendous to see, you know, Tottenham take that another step forward, you know, to be an established Champions League team, to get themselves to a Champions League final, to challenge, for Premier League titles, and 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 now it's just a matter of seeing the club take that next step forward, and and actually putting a couple more trophies in that trophy case. I think Casey is spot on. That's what we're all hoping for. We're hoping we're going to see trophies soon. But we are going to go for a very quick break, and when we return, we've still got lots more to discuss with Casey. We want to ask Casey about Helder Postiga, his top of the club, and why Casey may have felt it didn't work out. The breakup in terms of Glenn Hoddle, Casey leaving the football club the possible opportunity to rejoin Tottenham and plus the rest of Casey's illustrious career. Do not go anywhere because we are back after this very, very 
short break. Hello and welcome back to the second half here of The Last Word on Spurs. Delighted to be joined by John from Lee White Rose and our special guest this week on The Last Word on Spurs, informer Spurs keeper Casey Keller. And it's been a fascinating listen so far of Casey's time at the club and his overall career. And Casey, we're going to carry on from where we left off because there's one player we have to ask you about and that's Helda Postiga. Uh, Spurs fans are really excited, to be fair, when Helder came on board with the club. Why do you think, Casey, having watched him in training and playing with him, it never really worked out for him? Because on the European stage, and especially performing for his country, he was quite a decent player. Why do you think it never really worked out for Helder at Tottenham? Yeah, it's always the million-dollar question <laughs> is is how a, how a player, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out at a club. And to cross the board, it's not just something that happens, obviously, at Tottenham. It happens everywhere. And, 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 and you just wonder, is it a case of maybe, you know, a player being brought in, being asked to do something differently than he was <laughs> expecting to do? Is it is it just that the player maybe wasn't quite as good as 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 the scouts, as the, as, as the coaches thought? Was it just the atmosphere within the locker room didn't click there is there is no right answer there's no wrong answer and 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 it's not just you know to pick on helder there's been plenty of players throughout a lot of clubs that it just doesn't quite happen and then they leave and you wonder wow why why were those performances not for us or why was that and you know i think the only person you can really ask is 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 helder that question and and you know i think we we all saw when he came in, we all saw, you know, after he left that the, the talent was there and it was just a shame that it just didn't click for him at, at his time at Spurs. Casey, after a poor run of form, Glenn Hoddle was, was sacked. Did, did the players see that coming? And, and was there a sort of unease on the training ground about Glenn? I've, I've heard stories from ex-pros we've interviewed on this show about maybe Glenn's management style not being the best. Did, did you feel that at all? Well, I mean, I think it always depends. I mean, Management style is, is, is funny because I think the top managers in the world, they can have a true management style because they can buy the players that they want that fit into the style that they want to play. I think when you're, when you're talking about teams with different budgets, you have to be, I think, careful on how on what kind of egos you want to bring in what kind of different environment you want to put forward. And, and for whatever reason, there was, there was some sort of tension, you know, between, between Glenn, between Daniel, between, you know, some of the, the people that were in the ear of Daniels that were in, you know, the, and, 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 and obviously Glenn being, you know, such an icon that he, that he is, that he was, uh, there was definitely some personality clashes going on in, uh, you know, within the club. And, but I think if you look at kind of the club in general over that time period, I mean, I was, I was there three and a half years and it was Glenn, it was Santini. Oh, sorry. It was Glenn. It was uh, um, who took over an interim manager for David, yeah, Lee. David Lee. Then it was Santini. Then it was Yol. I was there three and a half years. I had four managers. Um, it's kind of hard to have any kind of consistency, any kind of culture, any kind of, uh, 
you know, kind of the models in which you're seeing professional clubs that are successful throughout the world when you have four managers in three and a half years. And so it's difficult to kind of just point a finger in one direction or another when, you know, in such a short period, you know, all those parameters change so often. You speak there about the, the managers and the changing of them and not having that consistency, Casey. I mean, just to ask you about one of them, you know, David Pleat, he then stepped into the role after Glenn was let go. I mean, he was more of an interim appointment. What did you make of his style of management? Because again, with David, we've heard um, a mixture of different opinions on players. How did you find David Pleat's coaching methods and playing under him as a man? Well, I think it's always different. I mean, when, when you know, for myself, I mean, I was, you know, playing every every game it didn't really change for me a whole lot um but but david was brought in just to you know do whatever he could just to make sure that that we didn't get sucked into a relegation fight and you know in the end we were able to you know it it wasn't that big of an issue but um but but yeah so you never really you weren't really you didn't think that david was then going to to be the next you know, long-term manager. It was just, all right, let's just get through this period and then see what happens after that, which obviously has its own uh, apprehension. You're losing time. You're losing, you know, you're, you're losing that, those matches, that growth period, you know, that confidence to know, you know, what exactly is the direction that this club is going? You know, where, where do I stand? Where does he stand? Where does the club, you know, what's the vision and, and so David did the job he needed to do. He needed to do get to the summer, and then, and then you had I think what was truly kind of a chaotic period. Chaotic period. That was obviously we had um, Jacques Santini join the club, Frank Arneson, Martin Yo. That was seen as a, a new era for Tottenham. What were your sort of memories of, of the three of those those men? Well, let's let's. Arneson is the first one to come in. You, you tell me how functional that the sport director comes in and hires the assistant coach before the head coach is hired. You tell me how many clubs that's worked out at. That sounds so, like Tottenham, though, to be fair, Casey. That sounds like Spurs. <laughs> well, that, but, but that's what I'm saying is, is it was oh, an dear. approach and trying to figure something out that obviously didn't work. And, you know, Santini very quickly realized that 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 it wasn't going to work he goes but then you know it's kind of the same thing when you look at a club how often do you see a club where the manager gets fired then the assistant coach comes in you're like no what what happens is 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 that group comes out and you bring a new crew that comes in with a different idea because obviously the group that was in before that it, it didn't work you know, it was, I think at that time period, nobody really knew who was in charge, who was making decisions, who was, who was the person that, that, you know, that if I signed or that if I was, you know, part of this club that, that made the decision for me to go forward. And, and, and it was, it was, it was pretty crazy. Well, match just under David Pleat's uh, stewardship, I want to ask you about. Back in 2003, we took on Leicester City in the first match at their new stadium. And we actually scored an excellent 2-1 win with a wonder strike from OJ Mabuzela. What was that like for you going back to Leicester well, and playing in such a big game? 
And but were the players at all surprised by Abbott's strike? So, you know, going back to Leicester was, you know, anytime you go back to your old club, it's kind of mixed, right? Is, is the fans appreciate you, what you did for them, but then also now you're playing for the team up against them. So, you know, I think the initial response was, was as always when I went back to old clubs that I played for, because I think they respected that I gave everything I possibly could. Um, so it was, it was a very warm reception. And then I probably gave up one of the worst goals of my, of my career. Um, but then what's always nice as a goalkeeper, you know, you know, you're going to make mistakes and you know, you're, you're going to make the odd big mistake. And, and what's always nice is, is when your team wins and you can look back and say, okay, that mistake didn't reflect on the points we received or, or how it went. And so David Pleat said something very interesting to me in the locker room after that match. And he said, you know, we were, I can't remember exactly how the scoreline went. I don't know if we went one nil down or if we were one nil up and then drew one. Yeah, one, one nil down, then Canute scored and then Mabuzela scored that late winner. Okay. And we weren't necessarily playing particularly well. And David Plate said something to me that I will always remember and I always appreciate to this day. He said, he said, you know, Casey, he said, you were so well, you're so well respected by your players, by your teammates, and so well liked. I felt that we might not have gotten the result we'd gotten if you hadn't made that mistake. And they wanted to do everything in their power to help you get out of that mistake. And, and for that, I, I, I truly appreciate that conversation from, from David uh, and, and, and reflect on that at times. Joe, it's funny you say that. We had Johnny Jackson on recently, Casey, and he said that with David, he always seemed to know the right thing to say, sometimes at the right time. And again, it's again indicament to kind of your story there that, you know, David always seemed to find the right thing to say to a player, maybe when it was going not so much his way or he was going through, you know, a bad game or a bad spell. So it's, it's fascinating when you hear, again, a story from a player that, yeah, kind of reflects back on that coach from what we've heard. So really fascinating. And at the start of the 2004-2005 season, you mentioned that, you know, the club, they signed a young English goalkeeper in Paul Robinson from Leeds and he was then put into the side straight away. You then joined Southampton on a one-month loan deal in November 2014 before departing the club for Borussia Mönchengladbach in the Bundesliga in that January window. I mean, you've kind of already touched on it, Casey, but did you actually expect to leave Spurs during that period? And was you hoping to be given the opportunity to challenge Paul Robinson for that number one spot at Tottenham? Yeah, there was no question. I mean, you said 85 games, but I think I played 99 matches if you count uh, cup matches. And so, you know, at that stage, I had played, you know, I think I'd played, you know, over 80-some matches, 85, you know, 86 matches in a row uh, without, uh, without missing a game. And then to going into that preseason and then, you know, knowing that the signing was there, I'd had some conversations you know, with, with Hans Sagers after the signing. And it was, you know, reassured that, no, that it was a, a competition. And, and then as, you know, preseason progressed, I realized quickly that it really wasn't a competition, that I, I didn't really have any chance 
regardless of, of, of what I had done. Um, and then by the time I had then been able to have the conversations with Arneson and, and Santini and, and making that, you know, revelation, it was, you know, too late in the transfer window. And, and I think that was just frustrating. I think most players, most people in general, you know, just want to an honest conversation with their employer, with their, with their boss, with whatever it is. And, 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 if, and if Spurs had come to me early in that signing and then just said, you know, look, thank you, but you're, I don't know what I was, 34, 35 at the time. And here's this 24-year-old, you know, goalkeeper. Uh, we have the opportunity to bring him in at a price that we thought was right. And, you know, we can't really sign him without playing him. Um, because he wouldn't have come if, if we had told him that he was in true competition, you know, with the guy that is, that has almost played a hundred matches in a row for the club. So, um, so yeah, that was disappointing and, and, and it was frustrating for myself and, and, but you know, that's part of what you deal with. You always hope that a situation, you know, goes the way you hope it goes, but you know, that time it didn't. And I had an agreement with, with Daniel, I had an agreement with Arneson that if there were opportunities for me to move after that, that that they wouldn't stand in my way. And the opportunity came with Southampton, where uh, Antony Amy and, and, and a couple of the younger goalkeepers were all injured at the same time. And Spurs didn't stand in my way to go play on loan for four matches. First matches against, you know, South. Hampton against Portsmouth at Southampton. We win 2-1, which never hurts when you beat your biggest rival in your first match. And, you know, I, I thank the club for giving me that opportunity. And then, you know, we push into the, into the January transfer window and I get a call from Dick Advocat and, 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 and Gladbach about coming in and, and helping them. And, and uh, I was able to, you know, sit down with, with Arneson and, and, and negotiate a good exit plan. And, and, you know, for that, I thank the club at the end for, for, uh, for helping me achieve that and getting into a situation where I was once again, you know, the number one and playing first team football. I just wish that it happened, you know, four months earlier and, and, and we all could have, you know, it, it, you would have avoided some tension in that time period. Casey, as you say, you made a total of 99 appearances for Spurs. Were you a bit disappointed not to reach that 100 appearances? And what were your sort of overall abiding memories of your time at the club? And does the improvement of the club as a whole surprise you at all? Um, yes, I, I was disappointed because I was playing in the League Cup games under Santini. And, and I was just so bummed that we, we had lost. I can't remember where we lost. It might have been Bolton, funny enough. Um, but... Uh, that I knew that I was like one game short of, of hitting that century. And, and yes, it was, it was a disappointment, but um, I take the, the real pride that I take in my time at, at Tottenham was, you know, battling a, a goalkeeper, the quality of Neil Sullivan, you know, winning that number one shirt and then being ever present for two seasons. And, and you know, I can't do anything about, you know, how my time at, at Tottenham ended, but I was just, you know, proud of those accomplishments and then to be able to, you know, move on to the club the size of, of, of Mucheladbach and, and be able to have one more of those experiences as an American 
to, you know, come to England, establish myself in the championship, establish myself in the Premier League, be the first American to ever play in La Liga, establish myself in La Liga, then to be able to go on and and captain, you know, a club the size of Mönchengladbach, uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of pride there. It's not a bad career, Casey, when you read it out like that, some of those honours. I mean, that, that is simply incredible. And I have to ask you, um, from a Spurs perspective, have you visited the new stadium yet? And also, you, you kind of touched upon it, your memories of maybe dealing with Daniel Levy as a whole. You mentioned that in the end, they were quite good to the club in terms of that extra strategy. But you mentioned a couple of times about there being a bit of tension maybe a couple of months before that. Um, how did you find Daniel as a person dealing with Daniel? And of course, have you had the chance to visit that new stadium yet? No, I mean, I was there was I was in talks with the Spurs, with the support staff about coming over and playing in the uh, kind of the the match, not not the one against Bayern Munich, but the but the one that was tried to schedule before it in in which, you know, they wanted to do a, a soft open to the stadium before they moved into the new stadium. And and the difficulties uh, was just. You know, I work every weekend broadcasting matches and to be able to go over, we tried to work it out. It didn't quite work out. And then when the, when the, you know, then when the match came about uh, against Bayern that I just wasn't available. So I was looking forward to maybe being able to see the new stadium at that stage. Um, it didn't happen. I was supposed to be over uh, for the Euros broadcast for ESPN um, this summer. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Um, I'm hoping that possibly um, at some stage in the near future that I'll be able to, you know, sneak back, uh, see some matches in England, visit visit Spurs, visit Leicester, visit Millwall, get over to Gladbach, see a game in Germany. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm able to be, you know, in that post-playing career, just to, to continue to be working, you know, every week and and and, and being a part of, of of a broadcast side. So, so I have not yet. I'm I'm looking forward to it. You know, to your point on Daniel, yeah, Daniel's a tough guy to work with. There's no question about it. I'm not the first or the last player that's going to say that. And and I and I, I think I think if Spurs, you know, really want to take that jump you know, to the next level, you know, it's, it's, it's twofold. One of it is the biggest outlier in sports. It doesn't matter what league around the world is the teams that pay the most money win. And, and Tottenham have done particularly under Pochettino a tremendous, uh, uh, to be able to get themselves in not being one of the top payers to challenge with the top payers. So, I hope at some stage, maybe the new stadium will be a mechanism to be able to make the finances available. Maybe some new sponsorship will come in, whatever it is that will allow Spurs to pay what the big boys pay so they can compete consistently with the big boys. Um, And then in the other time, I think if you can have a culture where players truly want to be at your club, that will help as well. And unfortunately, you know, some of the dealings with the club, not only with myself, but what I've heard from other teammates and other players, don't put together a culture that is extremely inviting. 
And there's a lot of competition out there, guys. And and if you're not going to pay the most, then you better be the most welcoming. And and unfortunately, at times, you know, Tottenham is neither. You see, just on Tottenham and your experiences now living in America, we, we talked about the growth of the club. Have you seen the growth of the club in America in terms of fans maybe wearing the jerseys or, you know, Tottenham's advertisements in America or their large sponsorship deals with the likes of Nike and Julie Packard? Um, do you feel like Tottenham are growing in America? We hear that they've got the most supporters clubs of any Premier League club in America. Does that seem realistic to you, living out in America? Oh, 100%. I think, I think there's been a tremendous growth uh, of, of Tottenham's profile uh, in America. Um, look, you're always going to be ke- playing catch-up to teams that are winning the title. Uh, um, but I think Tottenham, have, I would say Tottenham are the biggest club in America, um, outside of Arsenal, Man U, Liverpool, I think Arsenal still would probably top Tottenham, but uh, Man U, I'm not sure, even with Man City's ownership in Major League Soccer, I'm not sure if they would be bigger than Tottenham. I think what Tottenham became, you know, particularly in these last four or five years is they've been you know, in Champions League spots, you know, being in, you know, uh, uh, good games in Champions League, challenging, you know, for the title. They've been that club that that Americans have wanted to be a part of where they haven't felt like they're just jumping on the bandwagon of one of the teams, you know, that is winning and uh, or winning titles, winning trophies. And they have obviously played, they played a, very attractive style of of football under Pochettino. You know, hopefully Mourinho can you know move things forward when you have stars emerge. You know, like the Harry Canes. You know that that definitely helps. And 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 no question that Tottenham uh, has a strong profile in America. Casey, it's fascinating hearing you say about the fact with Spurs, maybe how they're going to have to change their culture a little bit, maybe in terms of maybe how they welcome players or, you know, paying more money for players. I just wonder from, again, an outside perspective now as a player that played for the club, what you made of the change in managerial stance at Spurs, going from a Pochettino that did so much for Tottenham over a five-year period. You'd argue that the only thing he didn't do was obviously secure the trophy that would show for the work he'd done and to then bring in a serial winner like Jose Mourinho, that, again, for some Spurs fans, they look now and think they still can't quite believe Jose Mourinho is the Tottenham Hotspur head coach. What was it like for you seeing that change, and do you believe Mourinho will be a success at Tottenham in time? I was a little bit disappointed at the sacking of, of Pochettino, simply because, you know, knowing the club, you know, knowing the resources that he, he, has, he had available, um in conjunction with the teams that he was finishing above, you know, what he'd been able to, to uh, put forward. I, I felt that he had more equity to give himself more of a, of a situation where if things weren't going right, that he could get himself out of it. Now, I obviously have an insane amount of respect for what, Jose Mourinho has been able to to do, and and, and the fact that he is the manager at the club, uh, I have you know the utmost confidence and and respect that 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 he'll be able to have a lot of success as well. But I, I felt that 
but I still feel that Pochettino was hard done by a bit. Back to your time in the Premier League, Casey. In 2007, after your successful stint in the Bundesliga, you returned uh, to the Premier League with Fulham and played a key yeah. part so did the unthinkable to stay in the league. Can you just talk us through the emotions of battling survival in the Premier League and staying up? Yeah, it's... Um... It was an interesting situation. I was trying to make some decisions when I was leaving Gladbach of what I was going to do. And, you know, in the end, uh, last minute, the opportunity came to go. Once It was funny that once again, the, the opportunity that I got to play four matches at Southampton in that little interim period uh, due to the injury to Antti Niemi, uh, once again was... The injury to Antti Niemi at Fulham was the opportunity that arose for me to go there and and be a part of of, of what Fulham was able to do. And um, I I got there. I kind of I was I was playing matches. I was kind of, I would I would say not necessarily established as the number one, but I was definitely establishing myself as the number one. And I was very fortunate throughout my career that I had very few injuries. But uh, we were. Training, it training. I think it was a, it was either Thursday or Friday before the match. Made a save and just completely blew my shoulder out, and which was really frustrating. That you know I'd gotten back to London and had the opportunity, was kind of really taking advantage of it, and then the, kind of for the first time in my career, I kind of had a long-term injury setback, and you know that was a that shoulder reconstruction was really four months out. And I kind of told the club, look, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get fit. I'm going to come back in the, you know, in the new year and kind of reestablish myself. And again, it was, you know, a little bit of turmoil. Laurie Sanchez had been fired and, and Roy Hodgson had been named manager. And I'm injured, you know, kind of during this time period and uh, kind of worked myself back to fitness. And, you know, we got into that. You know, the, the team was still struggling and in, and in a real dire situation. And you know, I, I must have proven myself in in training and in matches, and or at least in you know the odd reserve match that I was playing to get myself back fit. That that Roy uh, and, and and Ray had, had had said that look, let's let's put Casey back in and see what can happen. And you know, we went through a you know, those final. 10 matches of the season and and really dug ourselves out of one of the greatest, you know, Premier League escapes in Premier League history and, you know, super proud to be a part of that and, 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 and to have been able to, you know, come back from my first real long-term injury and, 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 and to reestablish myself and, and still prove at, you know, 37, 38 that I could put together performances that could, you know, that could, that could help a team secure Premier League status. Casey, when leaving Fulham, I understand that there may have been an option for you to come back to Tottenham. How far yeah. did that go? And, and, and you talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, it went, it went, really, uh, went really far. I mean, it was, uh, you know, as I, as I forementioned, you know, kind of my situation in the summer with Tottenham after the club had signed Paul Robinson. You know, I sat down with with Fulham, you know, after, you know, after the uh, the great escape, and and basically Fulham were extremely honest with me. They said, you know, we have an opportunity to bring in on a free transfer 
uh, a goalkeeper that that we feel you know will be you know with the club you know more long term because of his age than than what yours is. We're making you a you know a very good offer as a thank you for holding us up. We'd love for you to stay and you know in all likelihood be the number two. Um, and they let me kind of sit on that contract for a long time to think about and. You know, I had kind of said throughout my career that that I really never wanted to be a number two. I understand challenging for the number one spot and then winning it, but you know, I wanted to play. That for me was was what pro sports was all about. So as that was going on, um, my manager at Raya Vallecano was an individual named Juan de Ramos. Uh, Juan de is obviously the coach of Tottenham at the time, and he gets a hold of me and says, hey, you know, would you be interested in, in, in coming back to Tottenham? And, and I said, well, uh, well, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, with this, this offer, you know, with Fulham. And then one day calls me. And then I had another interesting phone call. I had a phone call from Jurgen Klinsmann asking me, would I be interested in coming to Bayern Munich? Wow. And he said, well, we've got this this young, this young, you know, German youth international uh, who, you know, has been promised that, you know, that he was going to play. He said. Promised by people ahead of Jurgen. And, and I said, well, you know, I, I would definitely can, you know, when a club like Byron calls, you definitely consider, you know, that option. So I said, sure, you know, I'll. Uh, I'd love to think about that. Now, the problem that really occurred with that was Oliver Kahn had just retired. I'm the same age of Oliver Kahn and you know, running it through the board. And I was kind of a, you know, I, it wasn't like I wasn't a big personality in the Bundesliga. And so the thought of bringing in, you know, kind of a 38-year-old with a big personality as the the backup at Bayern and it, it you know, that kind of fell through right at the last minute, but I was still talking to Tottenham, still making a decision at Fulham. And, and really in the end, what it came down to was Fulham made me a much better offer than Tottenham did. And I was going to still live in Wimbledon, make the horrible drive around around London into, into the, well, they were still training at Chigwell at the time um, for less money and maybe sit on the bench than stay at Fulham. Really, if, if Tottenham had made me an offer that Tottenham could have made me, I would have gone to Tottenham. Simple as that. How did you find Juan de Ramos? You said he was your manager at Vallecano. I mean, to Tottenham fans, they see him as this character that, yes, he won us our last trophy even to date, but they see him as a kind of reserved character who didn't really settle. You know him better than anyone, Casey. Could you give us a bit of insight on, on Juan de Ramos? Well, I think you have to understand also the dynamic that was at Tottenham at the time when Juan de was there. So Juan de came from a school where he was the coach. And this is kind of more normal, in, I think, in Spain than it is in England, where you know, sport directors and board members and kind of the financial people, you know, and make the decision on the players and the coach coaches the players that are given to him. 
And that was kind of, that was the school why they brought in Juan de Ramos, because he was, he was uh, experienced in that kind of environment. Um, and I thought he did a tremendous job in, in doing, you know, exactly that, dealing with the players that were given to him by the people who were in charge of signing and delivering those players. Now, as we know, the Premier League system, most teams that are successful don't work under that model. And I'm sure that Wande's was, well, look, I mean, why am I going to be, you know, doing this and doing that when I'm really not in control of doing, of, of having those, uh, those decisions. So I'll do my job. I'll do it to the best of my ability. I'll win Spurs their last trophy. And then in the end, Look, if it doesn't work out, then then I'll move on. And obviously, he went on to coach some big clubs. Now, Casey, just to finish up on you personally, you then returned to the MLS with the Seattle Sounders. And we have to ask you also, for you, has the quality in the MLS surprised you in terms of how much there has been improvement? And also, a really proud moment for you that following your retirement, you were introduced into the US Hall of Fame. Describe what a moment that was for you and your family. I think for me, when you talk about returning home, you have to understand the geography of the United States of America and how big it is, you know, returning home and playing in Florida or returning home to America to play in Florida is more or less the same flight for me to get to my home in the Northwest as it would be for me to stay in the UK and fly home to Seattle in the summer. So when the opportunity really arose for me to, to come, you know, home, to the Pacific Northwest and play for the new franchise that was the new MLS, you know, Seattle Sounders team. That was the opportunity to truly come home and to be a part of something, you know, uh, really cool. And I think that was the really key factor in me making that decision to come back, to come back to the United States and finish my career in MLS. And, and I think when you look at MLS, you can't, I was speaking at a at a data at a data analytics uh, conference uh, in the Northeast, and they're talking. Uh, you know, the big question is, you know, when is the U.S. going to develop, you know, the Messi or the Ronaldo or the you know the real marquee world class player? And I kind of said, look, I'm not huge on data data analytics. I think it can really it can help, but it's it's never going to surpass the eye test, but I said, I'll throw some numbers out at you of, since it's an analytics course. I said, 1885. I said, well, that's the year of one of the clubs that I played for was founded. I said, 1886, 1887. Okay, let's move to Germany, 1900. I said, MLS started in 1996. The U.S. national team hadn't qualified for a World Cup you know, before, you know, in, 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 in 40, 50 years, before 1990. I said, to think that you're automatically just going to then make these, you know, light year jumps into developing these uh, world-class, you know, ultra-world-class footballers, um, we're a little bit behind the curve. And not only are we behind the curve in time, we're also behind the curve in in resources and the ability to 
to take every possible person, every possible player that's possible to play for your national team. I said, so you you mentioned it earlier when I made the decisions to become a footballer. The options I had as an athlete really don't exist in the rest of the world. You know, you are, if you're from most countries in the world, every male's dream is to play for his national team in a World Cup. We have multi-multi-million-dollar professional skateboarders and BMX riders and, you know, freestyle motocross guys. And, I mean, the, the opportunities in the and in, in the chance and in, in the different things that you want to be as an American to be successful, you know, not only professionally, but financially are, you know, they're almost uncountable. And so, and so, yeah, there is a, a big competition for athletes and, and it'll take some time. And, but the quality of MLS just continues to grow. Uh, the, the real tricky part is, is as the quality continues to grow, so does the expansion of the league, which then dilutes the talent pool that little bit more. So, so yes, there were times probably back 89, uh, sorry, 98, 99, where MLS was having some contractions where maybe some clubs, you know, weren't making it. They were then, maybe there was only 10 teams in MLS, but that really you know, focus the amount of talent there was on such few teams. So, and then once again, you're back to the other, you know, big elephant in the room in all pro sports is what you can pay. And MLS doesn't have the worldwide contract, TV contracts that the Premier League has or La Liga or Bundesliga. And therefore, you know, you're always going to be chasing it because you just can't afford to pay what what the big leagues in the world can. So I think MLS has done a a very good job of understanding who they are, not growing too much, not expanding the, the payroll too much where then you get yourself in financial situations. So, but also understanding that you have, you know, you're a hundred, 120, 130 years, you know, behind a lot of clubs in the world. Just finishing up now in terms of what, what you're doing with your time now, and you said you're doing some punditry work. I mean, is that sort of a full-time commitment for you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, and, and then one thing about, you know, you know that in, in England you have, you know, BBC Midlands and BBC, you know, uh, Greater Manchester and stuff like that. But, but you know, you think of how, how big, you know, America is. You know, every MLS team has their own local broadcast uh, and then you have you know, obviously the nationals within ESPN and Fox so I have uh, two broadcast contracts I have one where I do every game for the Seattle Sounders and then I also have a secondary contract uh, which is also a full-time contract with ESPN where I do you know where I did you know the 2012 euros I did the you know the 2014 World Cup I would have you know I did the euros in France, uh, did the would have done these these last Euros, do all you know U.S. national team games, do other nationally broadcast MLS games for ESPN, several Bundesliga games, um, different things. So yeah, I'm I'm full time uh, in more ways than one uh, on the broadcast side.
Bringing back to Tottenham very quickly, who was the best player you played with during your time at the club? Uh, there's, there's, there's too many to count, but <laughs> you're too you kind. Know, you think, well, but you think of, you know, obviously, I, some of the aforementioned players of, you know, from from Teddy Sheringham, Les Ferdinand, obviously, you know, being right there at the beginning of Ledley's career and seeing just, you know, how good Ledley was, and it was just a shame that obviously, you know, I was talking to Ledley a few years ago, and just a shame that the the body just didn't keep up with the ability um you know obviously Robbie Keane came in and did some great things Jermaine scored a ton of goals uh you know same thing when I think you look at you know what a good player Christian Ziga was but he just physically couldn't you know it just wasn't working for him at that time Jamie Red Redknapp exactly the same such a phenomenal player but just just the body just couldn't keep him on the field week in and week out uh you know, so yeah, there's a, a slew of players and I apologize to all the great players that I missed. Well, Casey, I've got to say, I think it's been tremendous for us to hear about your Spurs journey. And it's one that I think, you know, a lot of our listeners would love to hear. So again, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I know John's going to probably echo those thoughts as well, John. Yeah, brilliant, Casey. Thank you so much for giving your time. You know, Spurs fans will always love hearing our ex-players and especially a career like yours, even away from Spurs, you've had so much success played in so many World Cups and it's been an absolute pleasure and honour to uh, to listen to you this evening and I'm sure our fans will be really grateful to listen to you. Cool. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, John. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favourite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.